Good morning, Chapel Street Church. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be here today to share with you uh, my compassion story. I'm so grateful to God for this opportunity because today you get to hear how God uses people to change the stories of our lives. I was born in Kenya uh, to a large family of initially 10 children. We lived in a village in western Kenya. My parents did not have a source of income. What they did was subsistence farming, uh, which means they grew things on the farm, and if nothing grew, then we did not have food. There were periods of time where there was no food, there were periods of time when we had food. Um, my parents never went to school, so they did not see the need to put any of us in school. And to add on to that, they were alcoholics. So many times they would disappear from home, they would go drinking somewhere, and when they came back home, it was all fighting and violence back home. Growing up in such an environment was difficult because most of the days we would wake up and not know what the day would look like. Would we have food that day? Would, uh, where would our parents be that day? But I'm grateful to God because Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I'm grateful because one day my uncle came home and decided that he was going to help our family by taking one of, my, of us to go live with him in Nairobi. He took me to go live with him in Nairobi, Kenya, and he put me in school but he could not keep me in school. His reason being that he wanted to take one of us, put them in school, and hopefully one day this child will come back and change this family. I'm grateful to God because he put me in school, but him not being able to keep me in school meant that I would be in school for some time and then at some point I would have to go back home because there was no money to pay for my schooling. And I really desire to stay in school. I'm grateful because one day, uh, compassion social workers came to our school looking for needy children, and my grade three teacher forwarded my name to them. They came and interviewed my aunt, and I got enrolled into the compassion program. That is when my life began to change. I was not only able to go to school, but I was able to stay in school. Through Compassion International, I got wonderful sponsors, Bob and Colleen Staggs. Bob and Colleen Starks changed my life in that their sponsorship not only ensured that I stayed in school, but I could also go to the Compassion Project and learn the Word of God. I gave my life to Christ because one of the social workers of the project shared with me the love of Jesus. I'm grateful for Bob and Colleen because they wrote letters to me telling me how much they loved me, how much they were praying for me, and that I could be anything I wanted to be, and that they were there for me. I'm grateful for their sponsorship because through that, I was able to stay in school. I completed my high school and proceeded to the University of Nairobi to pursue a bachelor's degree in physics. From there, I got a scholarship to go to Italy for uh, two years to pursue a postgraduate diploma in physics, and I came to Memphis, Tennessee, in 2011 to pursue a uh, graduate degree, PhD in physics, which by the grace of God I completed in December of 2015. I'm grateful to God because my sponsors did not just change my life, but they changed my family. I remember praying that God would change the story of our family, that my parents would stop drinking one day. And I'm grateful because through learning the word of God, I was able to ask God to change our family. My parents stopped drinking and started going to church. My family, my husband and I are also currently sponsors with compassion because I know what it means to be that child on a packet waiting for someone to pick you up and speak hope 
and life to you. I've also started a mentorship program in Kenya for women in physics to encourage them that they can be anything they want to be because we have been through that process and they too can go through it. I'm so grateful to God because the sponsorship did not just change my life. It changed my family and it is changing our community right now. So as I stand here today, I'm just a testimony that when you take that step of faith and sponsor a child with compassion, you are not just changing that child's family life. You're changing that family. You're changing that community. You're changing that country. As I stand here today, I am grateful to God that this is a testimony that indeed God uses people to change the stories of our lives that will not remain the same. Those children on those packets are not going to remain the same because God is going to connect them to sponsors today and they shall be released from poverty in Jesus' name. Thank you so much and God bless you. What a story, huh? What a story. I hope you realize that Cecilia was uh, being recorded in our studio up at Kesslinger. She was at our Saturday night service last night and she was live at Kesslinger this morning. We had her on video at South Street. You have a video here. But her story, right, born into poverty, and dysfunction and alcoholism. Uh, compassion comes along. She goes to school, meets Jesus, becomes a follower of Christ, earns a PhD in geophysics. If she walked in here today, she'd be the smartest person in the room, my guess is. <laughs> and now she's supporting other children through compassion. What a great story. We have the same chance. That's why we're choosing compassion, why we have a chance to, to take on the children of Ecuador. I hope you'll stop by the table after the service and consider doing that as well. Well, I'm Brian Coffey. I'm pastor of our South Street campus. Uh, it's uh, fun to be with you here again this morning. I was looking forward to it all week. I love this, this venue. It's very close. I like being close to people. And I want to use that as we start. I want to do a little audience participation. So what I want to know is um, simply the, your, your high school mascot. What was your high school mascot? I went to school in New York. My school was called Byram Hills. We were the Bobcats. So, I want to hear some, uh, some mascots. What was yours? Bears. The Bears. Wildcats. Wildcats. You probably didn't have one. You grew up in England. No mascots. No mascots. Yeah, the, we'd be like the biscuits or something, right? Hornets. <laughs> hornets. Like murder hornets or just hornets? Regular hornets. Vikings. Vikings. Are you a Geneva guy? No. Oh, okay. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. Blackhawks. Blackhawks. Nice. Tigers. So far, tigers is the mean, is the scariest. Anybody ever? The knights. The knights. Oh, okay. Our warriors. Warriors. Maroons. The maroons. Okay. <laughs> Name the color. Okay. Falcons. Falcons. Okay. How many of you watched uh, any of the, final, the college basketball Final Four? Anybody watch any uh, March Madness? Did you? Who could tell me the, the mascots of the teams that were involved? The Villanova Wildcats. How about the Duke? Now, you have to wonder about a school started by Methodists <laughs> and has a seminary. North Carolina, Tar Heels, but their mascot is a what? You know, it's, like a, it's like a sheep. It's a big, angry, dorset sheep. I looked it up. Okay? And then the Kansas... Jayhawks, which is also, also kind of a mythical thing. There's no such thing as a Jayhawk. It's a combination of a Blue Jay and a, some sort of sparrow hawk or something like that. But it turns out the Blue Jay uh, won, actually. But uh, symbols like this, mascots, are intended to symbolize a school or a university and to create kind of a spirit of enthusiasm and a spirit of victory. And symbols are significant. Symbols are 
powerful. Consider uh, the enduring symbols of the great religions of the world. Uh, the Star of David represents Judaism. Uh, many, many Muslims around the world uh, identify with the crescent moon. And for 2,000 years, Christians have lifted up the cross as our symbol. Now, here's the question as we begin today. How did the cross, which is actually one of the most depraved and barbaric instruments of torture and death ever created by the mind of human beings, how did that become a symbol of hope and life and victory for billions of Christians across 2,000 years. That's what we're going to talk about today. We have just two weeks left in this series called Following the King. This is actually the 21st sermon in the Mark series, if you're following along. Next week will be Easter. It will be the final one. And Mark's leading us to the conclusion of the story. We're right toward the end. So I want to give you kind of a, a timeline. This is my timeline. We're not given all these details in Scripture. But my timeline of sort of the last 12 hours of Jesus' earthly life. So about 8 p.m. Uh, the previous evening, Jesus has the, the Passover meal with his disciples. During that meal, he says, one of you will betray me. And then he changes the meaning of the bread and cup forever. We call that communion today. Then about 10 p.m. or so, I'm guessing, he walks from the upper room with his disciples toward the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. Along the way, he says, all of you are going to fall away. And they argue back, no, 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 we're not going to fall away. Peter says, no, I'll die with you. And then they get to the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, and between maybe 11 p.m. and 1 in the morning, Jesus prays. We're told that three times he prays with great agony, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. And three times we hear the disciples, namely Peter, James, and John, fall asleep while Jesus prays. 1 to 2 a.m. or so, Judas arrives with a whole squad of soldiers. Jesus is arrested, bound, and dragged to the palace of the high priest for a trial in the middle of the night. He's tried for blasphemy. The disciples scatter in fear. Peter follows at a distance. And then say between 2 and 3 in the morning, uh, Peter's in the courtyard of the high priest. The trial's going on inside. Peter's out by the fire, and he denies Jesus three times in that moment. Between 3 and 5 a.m. or so, Jesus is condemned by the high priest for the crime of blasphemy, that is, claiming to be the Son of God. In the Jewish way of thinking, that was punishable by death. But since the Romans were in control, the Jewish court didn't have that authority. So they send Jesus to the Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate, uh, to execute the death penalty. Now notice, all this is happening in the middle of the night. This is uh, the, the plan. This is going according to plan. This, all this is happening in secret meetings so nobody in the public can know what's going on. Pilate finds no reason to condemn Jesus, so he sends him to King Herod, the same King Herod who killed, executed John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Herod wants to see Jesus do a few tricks. He's heard he can do some stuff. Jesus doesn't say a word. Herod gets bored, sends him back to Pilate. Pilate still can't find any reason to condemn Jesus. But the Jewish leaders put extreme pressure on Pilate by saying, he claimed to be king. We have no king but Caesar. Meaning, if you don't condemn this man the way we want you to, we're going to report you to your boss, who's the emperor, and you're going to be in trouble for allowing a person who claims to be a king to survive. Now, this is probably 6 a.m. in the morning or so. Pilate has no choice, so he decides to put it before the people, this mob of people. Now, what kind of mob gets together who've been up all night? This is like 5 or 6 in the morning. And this, these are people gathered together by the Jewish authorities 
for the simple purpose that when, when Pilate presents Barabbas or Jesus to be set free, they choose Barabbas. Pilate now has no choice. He condemns Jesus to be crucified. So about 7 or 8 a.m., Jesus is taken to be flogged first by the Roman flagrum. That was a tool, a weapon uh, of torture. Uh, it was leather straps tipped with bone and metal designed to rip flesh off the human beings, and Jesus was flogged. And many men died from the flogging alone, that alone being crucified. And then he's told to carry his cross to the place of execution. So by 9 a.m., we are told in Scripture, Jesus is nailed to a cross. And I say it that way because what you need to see is this is a Friday morning now. Uh, it's a work day in the Jewish week. The next day is the Sabbath, the day they take off. So by the time people are getting up, having breakfast, commuting to work, Jesus is already nailed to a cross. It's all happened during the night. No one even knows. That leads us to our passage we're going to read today out of Mark chapter 15. And when the sixth hour had come, now the Jewish way of thinking of time started at uh, sunrise, 6 a.m. So the sixth hour is about noon. Okay? Mark tells us Jesus had been nailed to the cross in the third hour, which would have been 9 a.m. And the sixth hour had come, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, or three in the afternoon. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, but put it on a reed, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see if whether Elijah will come and take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. First thing we see in the story is the death of the king. The death of the king. Now, if I say November 22nd, 1963, what comes to mind? The assassination of John F. Kennedy. Now, I know there are younger people here, and when I, if I would say the date September 11th, 2001, you'd think of something else. But those of us who were alive in 1963, I can almost guarantee you remember where you were and what you were doing when you heard the news that the president of the United States was dead. I was in third grade, it was after school, came home to a babysitter's house, and the TV was on, and I began to, even though I didn't fully understand, I remembered where I was, what time of day it was, and you probably remember as well. Notice the detail of Mark's account of the day Jesus died. And then when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. We're talking about the crucifixion here. And this is really holy ground. Crucifixion, you may be aware, uh, isn't just a for an ancient form of execution. It was that. But it was also a, a political tool of terror and power. It was used to humiliate and intimidate whole populations. Roman emperors were known to crucify hundreds, sometimes thousands of men on the same day. Just to intimidate, to control. One historian called crucifixion death in slow motion. It was designed to kill a human being in as slow and painful way as possible. Often took several days 
for a man to die on a cross. The first century historian of Rome, Cicero, wrote, Crucifixion is the most cruel and disgusting penalty. The very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. Mark tells us that between noon and 3 p.m., in the middle of the day, the sky goes dark. The sky goes dark when it should not be dark. Now, this is literal darkness, but it also has a deep symbolic meaning. If you remember the story of the Exodus, when the Israelite people escaped from Egypt in bondage, God sent ten plagues on the Egyptians. He sent frogs, lice, flies, boils, locusts. But you know what the ninth plague was? Darkness. Darkness covered the land. And then God told the Israelites to slaughter a a spotless lamb, smear the blood over the doorposts of their homes, so that when the angel of death came, it would pass over their homes. So now, here again, Mark tells us, darkness covers the whole land as the blood of a spotless lamb is spilled. Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Now that's an Aramaic phrase, one of the languages Jesus would have spoken, the popular language. And Mark tells us the bystanders think he might be crying out to Elijah. Now, uh, in Aramaic, the word Eloi, translated my God, does sound like the name Elijah in Hebrew. And Elijah was the prophet in the Old Testament that never died. He was taken to God in a chariot of fire. So the ancient Jews had a superstition that when the Messiah came, Elijah would return. But we need to see here, this is not a serious question being asked. This is a, a, a joking mocking question that's being asked. Matthew tells us in his gospel, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. It's mocking, making fun. So Jesus is not calling out to Elijah here. Rather, he is actually quoting Scripture. Look at Psalm 22. It begins like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the forsakenness Jesus is sensing here is when, as Paul says, he becomes sin, that is, he's feeling and bearing the wrath of God on all sin. But let's look at the rest of Psalm 22. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Father, let this cup pass from me if it's possible. He prayed in the garden. Yet you are wholly enthroned in the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Not my will be done, but yours be done. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man. I discovered this uh, week that that word worm is specific. It's a specific kind of worm that was crushed and used to make a red dye, a crimson dye that dyed clothing. That's just a point of interest. Scorned by mankind, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Let's see if Elijah will come down and take him off the cross. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. 
that happened when men hung on a cross. Their shoulders popped out of joy. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. All of that took place hundreds of years later at the cross. But look how the psalm ends. Verse 27, and all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Now, why does Jesus quote this psalm at that moment? This is a messianic psalm. The Jews understood this is talking about the Messiah, the one who would come and save them from their sins. And it begins with a cry of forsakenness and then clearly points in a prophetic manner to the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. And then it ends with the triumph of the king because that's still coming. Jesus is fulfilling his messianic identity. This is what the prophet Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So in every detail, Jesus' death fulfills the ancient prophecies. Back to our text, verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Mark says at the moment of Jesus' death, he uttered a loud cry. And sometimes this is seen as just the cry of, of, of a dying man in agony and pain. But I think it's something else. If we look and see how Luke describes this very same moment, he writes, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Here's what John says. And when he had received the drink, <coughs> excuse me, he said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. If we take all these together, uh, what we see is that this was not the cry of pain of a man dying in agony. This is a cry of victory. I have finished what the Father has sent me to do. Not my will be done, but yours. This victory was won in the garden in prayer. The second thing we see in the story is what I'm calling the work of the king. The work of the king. I've told this story before. Maybe some of you will remember it, but I always think about it when I get to this part of the story. When I was about 10 or 11 years old, my dad was a pastor of a small church in New York, and um, our family living quarters, what we call the parsonage, which actually attached to the church building. So it would be like we lived over there in the lobby and the sanctuary was here. Uh, we lived in the church. And our, our, where we lived was separated from the sanctuary by my dad's office. There was a small hallway going from our kitchen. Uh, there was a door, my dad's office, and then the sanctuary. So the rule in our house was if that door shut, it means my dad's at work, uh, don't go in there. But if the door was open... We would use it as a shortcut to get into the rest of the church, and we could play and play tag and all that sort of stuff. We had a, we had a lot of places to run around in. Um, so one day, I forget really why I thought this, but I thought, didn't think my dad was in there. The door was shut, but I didn't think he was in there. We were playing tag, running around, and I burst through that door and right into a counseling session. My dad behind his desk, a congregation member sitting there, and I knew right away I had made a mistake, and I was in trouble. And before I could sort of slink out of the room, my dad went, 
I thought, okay, here it comes. I, I, I'm going to get reprimanded or at least a promise to deal with me later. And I walked around his side of the desk, and he turned me around to face the other person. He said, this is my oldest son, Brian. Then he turned me back around to face him, and he said, what do you need from me today, son? I was like, whew, I'm not in trouble. <laughs> but what I realized was that I had a unique relationship with him. That in a way, that door was always open to me. I had access. Look what Mark says. Verse 35. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the curtain of the temple, and some of you may know this, was this enormous tapestry, 60 feet high, some 30 feet wide, at least 4 inches thick, incredibly heavy. And it separated the rest of the temple from what was called the Holy of Holies. And that was the place where it was believed the very presence of God, Yahweh, dwelled. And so no one could go in there because God was holy. The only person that could go in there was the high priest, and he went in once a year after cleansing himself, and there he would offer a blood sacrifice because in that room was the holiest relics of Israel's past. The Ark of the Covenant, which contained uh, uh, Aaron's rod, some broken pieces of the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written, and some manna. And on top of the Ark was the mercy seat where the priest would pour the blood to atone for, to pay for the sins of the people. And at the moment of Jesus' death, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that this great curtain was torn from top to bottom. And the word torn means to rend or to sever or to cleave. It's a violent ripping apart from top to bottom, meaning this could only be an act of God. And it symbolized the way was now open, the door was now open to the very presence of God himself. Here's how the writer of Hebrews says it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And in many ways, this was the cry of the entire Old Testament. Moses cried out, Tell me your name. Who shall I say sent me? Show me your glory. King David, after the worst failure of his life, wrote in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Remove not your presence from me. And I think this is the cry of so many in our world today. Where is God? Where is God in the world that we see around us? How can I know God? How can I be relieved of this weight that I feel? Mark's telling us we know God by looking at the man on the cross. In the cross, we see the God who is just and righteous. On the cross, we see the God who is merciful and forgiving. We see the God who loves, the God who bleeds. We see the mystery of the crucified God. In Jesus, we see the one who opens the way, opens the door, to the very presence of, to the forgiveness of, to the salvation of God himself. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And that leads us to the third part of the story, which I'm calling the promise of the king. The promise of the king. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I got away for three days. I went to Nashville or the Nashville area to visit her twin sister and my brother-in-law who lived down there. 
and we flew southwest. Anybody fly southwest here? You know how southwest works. You try to, you try to you know, get your uh, seat right away so you get in the A group. So we got in the A group, miraculously, so we got to choose our seats. And you're kind of hoping that maybe you get, we could sit in two and leave that third seat empty and have room. Uh, and so we got on the plane first. I, I pick, we picked our seats. I like to get the aisle seat. Uh, because sometimes they have to get up, and it's kind of for personal reasons. And then and she takes the middle seat, and we leave the aisle seat, uh, the window seat free, hoping that that'll stay free. But it was a full flight, and so sure enough, after we take our seats, just minutes later, this young guy comes walking down the aisle, mid twenties, late twenties, long hair, kind of tied up in a man bun, and he looks at us, and he kind of goes, "Like, can I sit in that?" I said, "Okay, sure." And so we get up. He sits in the window seat. So he's in the window. My wife's in the middle, and I'm in the aisle, and we're not having taken off yet. And almost as soon as we, he sits down, he takes out his backpack and takes out a book. And I start thinking about what I'm going to do or trying to go to sleep or whatever. And we're still sitting on the runway. And so I'm surprised to hear my wife engage this guy in conversation, just a young guy. And I hear her say, um, I can't help but notice the book you're reading. So I glance over, and he's taken out of his backpack a paperback copy of The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Which you don't know the book, it's a step-by-step apologetic treatment presentation of, Jesus, of the truth of Jesus. It's a great book, powerful book. And uh, he says, yeah, well, a friend gave this to me like a year ago, and I haven't read it yet, so I thought I might read it. I don't know anything about it. And she goes, well, it's a good book. It's a really good book. Lee Strobel's got a great personal story. I've read it. My husband's read it. She pointed, she goes to me, you read it, right? And I'm like, yeah, I've read it. I read it. And he goes, yeah, well, um, maybe I, I don't know anything about it. I'm just getting started. And then he took out the book again like he wanted to read. So she didn't ask him any more questions, and I didn't lean across, although I wanted to, but he, he was going to read the book. We needed to let him read the book, and that was kind of the end of the conversation. But I found myself thinking about that guy as we took off and flew, um, wondering, boy, I hope he reads all the way through. He said he didn't know anything about it. Maybe, maybe he'll meet Jesus in this book. Mark says here in verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now, who was this centurion? We don't have a name for him, just a centurion. All we know is that he would have been a Roman soldier, a professional soldier. Probably a, uh, his whole life he had been raised to do this. He was the commander of a hundred. That's what a centurion means. He hardened by battle, maybe through a thousand crucifixions. We don't know. We know he was pagan. Growing up as a Roman, he would only have thought of the pantheon of Roman gods like Jupiter, the protector of the state, or Mars, the god of war, or Bacchus, the god of wine. Gods that were impersonal, distant, and vindictive. It would have been utter foolishness for him to even enter, uh, enter the thought that a man, especially a Jewish man, who Romans thought of as sort of less than animals, could be a god. Especially a man executed as a criminal on a cross could be a god. But what has he heard and seen on this particular day? It's possible he was responsible for the arrest in the garden. We don't know. We aren't told. It's possible. It's likely he was there for the trial before Pontius Pilate, because Pilate was the Roman governor, he was a Roman centurion. It's almost certainly true that he was present for the flogging of Jesus of Nazareth and, for, and gave the order for the nails to be driven through his hands and feet, because that was his responsibility. And he's seen all this before, a hundred times, a thousand times, just another day in his work. And in most cases, what he was used to is men being crucified cursed Rome and cursed him. That's what he was used to. But that's not what he sees this time. He most likely gave the order to drive the nails, but this man did not offer curses. 
He most likely watched as his soldiers twisted the crown of thorns and pressed them on this man's skull, yet the man said nothing in return. He witnessed the mocking of people who, who seemed happy to see him die, and yet this man says nothing in return. Maybe he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. But they don't even know what they're doing. Maybe he overheard the conversation between Jesus and the two men dying on either side of him. Maybe he heard him say, today you will be with me in paradise. He saw the sky go dark in the middle of the day. He may have heard Jesus say, it is finished. But here's what I notice. Mark says, he stood facing him. One translation says, he stood right in front of him. I think this is saying more than his physical location. He stood facing him. I think it means he looked at him. He saw him. Many people saw the crucifixion. Many people witnessed what was happening. We don't know how many, but some were glad to see him die. Some were just curious what's going on here. Some mocked. A few grieved. But this centurion, Mark says, stood facing him. And in this moment, he makes an astonishing confession. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, a couple of things here we have to see. First, this is highly ironic. Highly ironic. Because those who should have seen and should have known did not see and did not know. Those who knew the prophecies of Isaiah, those who knew the words of Psalm 22, those who heard Jesus teach, those who saw the miracles, did not see. And this pagan Roman, who should not have seen, saw. Secondly, you need to see that this is the first person in the entire Gospel of Mark to clearly identify Jesus as the Son of God. Did you know that? Peter identified him as the Christ. You are the Christ. That means the Messiah. The Sanhedrin sentenced him to death because he, they said, you claim to be the Son of God. But they didn't believe he was the Son of God. And yet this man, right here, is the first confession of faith. This man is the Son of God. You remember how Mark started his story? 21 weeks ago, or longer now. Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The entire gospel of Mark, from chapter 1, verse 1, to where we are right now, is moving to this moment. Jesus surrenders himself to the scandal of the cross, he bears the wrath of the Father on all sin. The curtain is torn from top to bottom, and our pagan Roman confesses this is the Son of God. Do you see it? This is the point of Mark's gospel. And as I thought about that this week, and this centurion, whose name we do not know, I found myself thinking about that young guy playing again. And it struck me that he's a centurion. Culture, uh, centuries and cultures removed, but he's like the centurion. He doesn't know the man on the cross. Not yet. He doesn't understand what the man on the cross is doing and why. He doesn't know what the man will, on the cross will do in three days. He doesn't know that the man on the cross is the God who created him and loves him and forgives him and wants to give him a, a new heart and a new identity and a new purpose and a new destiny. But he has a friend who gave him a book. And he's reading a book that was written to help people like him 
come face to face with a man on the cross to see Jesus. And if and when he does, the curtain is torn again from top to bottom, and the way is made open, and he will say, surely this is the Son of God. There are three ways I think we could find ourselves in this story today. One is we were the centurion. That is, at some point in our lives, in your life, you were far from God, lost in a culture full of false gods, until coming face to face with the man on the cross. And maybe you remember that time today. Or maybe we are the centurion today. That is, maybe today you stand facing Jesus, the man on the cross, for the first time. And for the first time, you recognize he carried your sin. That's why he's there. And today you can confess, surely this is the Son of God. Or maybe you know a centurion. So who is there in your life who does not yet know Jesus? Who can you pray for? Who can you build a relationship with? Who can you give a book to? Who can you love and serve so that one day he or she may see and know the man on the cross. Because if the way was opened for a nameless, hardened, professional soldier, a pagan Roman, if the way was open for him to know the man on the cross, the way is open for anyone that you might know. That's what Mark's after. That's what Mark is telling us. That's why he's telling us the story. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we thank you today for your word. And the story we look at today is in many ways so violent and barbaric, if we really look at it, that we want to look away. But it's also so beautiful and so powerful, we must not look away. So help us today and this week to see, to stand facing the man on the cross. And if there is one like the centurion in this room today, even one who does not yet know, the man on the cross, may he or she see and confess today that this is indeed the Son of God. It's in your name that we pray.